0: Come on, how's it going, chapel? So good, so good. Man, if we haven't met, my name is Andy. I get the privilege and honor of leading our production department here at the chapel. And you know, real quick, we have just two incredible campuses. And at each one, we have incredible production teams that just make Sundays happen. They're never seen, but they're awesome. Can we just honor them real quick? Can we just give them praise? We're so thankful for what they do. They do an incredible, incredible job. Thank you guys. Man, well, I don't have a lot of time as you can see behind me, and I wanna be respectful of your time. So we're gonna jump right into what the Lord has placed on my heart. And it's this principle of less of me, more of God. Less of me, more of God. And I think there's a great example in scripture in the book of Judges um, that kinda underlines this principle. And there's a, a guy named Gideon. He's been raised up as a leader in his community in Israel. And there's this battle that's approaching and, uh, against the Midianites. Not Mennonites, Midianites. Big difference, all right? Don't get those confused. <laughs> but he's preparing for this battle. And so he realizes that the opponents, there's 135,000 soldiers. And so he gets a horn out. He blows on it. And all the Israelites nearby, they gather together to see how many they have for this battle to fight. And it wasn't the biggest crowd, but apparently it was too big. Because we see later on in verses 2 through 3, the Lord says this to Gideon. He said, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or else Israel would boast against me saying my own strength has saved me. So basically God, he could deliver them, right? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he's saying, hey, if I deliver you in this specific way with all the men you've got together, you're going to think it was because of how many men showed up and not God who showed up. So he's like, we need to change something. And, you know, I think that this scripture, there's a, a really cool point that's in here. I feel like this is for someone this morning. But who here has ever said, I can't do it because I don't have enough? I can't do it. I think this scripture flips that on its head and says this. Is it that you don't have enough or is it that you have too much? And your much has actually blinded you and you're focused on your resources rather than the God who gave you the resources. Come on. So he's in this fire, right? He's about to get ready for this battle. Midianites, they have 135,000. It says in scripture he had 30,000 and God's like, that's too many. So he says this, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 20,000 left and 10,000 remained, so it was 30, now it's 10. It's not looking great, but the Lord says this in verses four, there's still too many men. Yeah, you're like, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300 who took over. Now, if you do the math, I love this, think about 30,000 down to 300. Here's what God kind of said with math right there. He goes, I can do more with 1% of what you have than you can with 100% of your starting position. He's letting him know there. I love that. And he can do so much with so little. And he proves it right here in Judges seven twenty two says, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord, not Gideon, not his 300 men, the Lord caused the enemy camp, the enemy to turn on each other with their swords. And the battle was won. And I think here's the principle that Gideon learned in that moment when that happened. When he had 300 men's blown trumpets and do basically nothing, And God do everything else and win a battle that was impossible. Here's the principle I think he learned. That a little in God's hand will do so much more than a lot in your hand. A little in his hand will do so much more than a lot in yours. And uh, my friend Melissa, she's actually going to help me. I want to illustrate this real quick and make it real practical. She's going to come out and help. Uh, But if you don't know this about me, I am multi-interested. Not multi-talented, multi-interested. I I love doing a lot of things. I love rock climbing. I love swimming, competitive racing, uh, photography, videography. I probably have too many hobbies. Um, I love guitar. Um, Actually, one of the things that I know just enough to be dangerous in is uh, piano, right? And I know all these different things. And I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily great at all of them. Some of them I don't even do half decently. But I know enough in piano to, you might think I know what I'm doing, right? And if anybody's ever been to like a hotel, like one of the really fancy ones, there's like a piano in the lobby. Imagine you saw that, you walked in to check in and I'm over there and I'm like, ooh, there's a piano. Let me just, let me just go over here and let's just play a little bit. You know? Okay, you know, there's this little something. You're like, what's going on, okay. You might think that I actually know what I'm doing, right? But if I keep going long enough, you're gonna be like, I feel like he's playing the same four chords. <laughs> it's just kind of looping. There's nothing else there. And it's the truth. That's all I can do, right? (laughs) I know like four chords. But here's the thing. In life, imagine this keyboard right here is life, right? And you can sing whatever song. You can play whatever song, whatever story you want to tell. And for a moment, just imagine that Melissa is is representing God in this illustration, right? So you've got your life all ahead of you. You can play whatever you want. But in my case, I've got four chords, And so I've got a limit, right? There's only so much that I can do. There's only so much before I max out what I can do with my life and with my potential. And God's like, hey, I wanna help, right? I'm a great key player. I'm great at life. God's like, I wanna help. I can do this. But here's the thing. I don't wanna give him any of my life, right? I wanna control all 88 keys, right? I wanna control this whole thing because I'm afraid if I let him in, if I give him a piece, then he's gonna play a song I don't like, a song I wasn't ready for. My story is going to go a little different than I planned. So I don't want to give him any. But eventually, right, I'm going to be playing and I'm going to mess up, right? I'm going to be playing and, and I'm going to be going, oh, yeah, this is good. And then something's going to happen. And I'm like, I don't know what to do, right? It doesn't sound good. And so I'm like, you know what, God, you want to help. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit. How many, how many keys do we have here? 88. 88. All right. So how about this? How about you have just these eight and I still get 80 keys? All right. I get the majority still. And you just get eight. All right, so I'm over here. I'm playing, you know, my song. I'm having a good time, trying to do as much as I can. And then it's like, you know what? What if God jumped in, right? What if we had God start playing something? You go, oh, that's starting to sound better. It's starting to sound actually really nice. Like, I kind of like that when he steps in and does something, right? You know, the song, it's crazy. I, I have less keys, but I'm making better music. The story is better now. You know, I've got less control, but I've got less stress because I got confidence when I mess up, his grace is gonna cover me, right? I can actually step back and say, you know what? He already did that with eight keys. What could he do if I gave him more? What if I gave him more of my life? What if I stepped away completely and said, hey, you start playing all the song. It's all yours, right? It starts sounding way better than the four chords I know, right? It starts sounding way better. Here's the principle that Gideon, I think, learned in that moment. When you give God more, when you start handing him more, he can do incredible things. You start giving him your reputation, you give him your finances, you give him your job, you give him your family, you give him your relationships, you give him your friendships, you give him everything, your life gets better, the song gets so much better because it's in the hands of the creator, not in the hands of the created. Come on, it passes over. Gideon understood, he couldn't win that battle with 10,000, 30,000, only God could win that battle because he gave it all to him. Here's what I wanna leave you guys with this morning. How many keys are you willing to give him this morning? Does he have eight keys? Does he have 16? Are you willing to give him the whole thing? Does he get the whole keyboard? Can he play whatever song he wants in your life this morning? I promise you, if you let him have some, if you let out all of it, The song gets so much better. Your life will be so much better because it's living for purpose. It's living for God. So just remember that. Hold less. Let God do more. Thank you guys so much. It's been great. What's up, Chapel family?
1: How are we doing? We sound good. We sound good. Well, my name is Rebecca, and I have the privilege of serving here this summer as an intern. Um, But this fall, I'm going into my junior year at VCU. Um, So if you do the math, that means I went into college two years ago during the fall of 2020, also known as COVID year. Um, And it was the worst time to make friends. The absolute most difficult time. Um, And yet, friendship and true community were all I craved. Like, genuinely all I wanted. Um, I had been praying for good friends uh, for years who sought the Lord with intentionality um, for years leading up to college. And I met people in my hall and I loved them. Don't get me wrong. They were fantastic. But they didn't love Jesus. I joined InterVarsity, an on-campus Christian community and found my people. I met two girls, Laurel and Brisa, and they became my small group leaders. Through this small group, the Lord changed my view, my entire view on Christian community and showed me how important and special it is. If you have your Bible or an app on your phone, turn with me to Psalm 133. For a little context, Psalm 133 was written by King David, um, probably when he was finally received as king over all of Israel. So let's read. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I just love this passage of scripture. It starts out with the word behold, it is an exclamation. Behold, look at this, admire this. Christian community is something we're stopping whatever you're doing and appreciating. It should be something you make time for. I love that David says unity among God's people is good and pleasant. And pleasant. Not all things are both. For example, I would say doing my hours and hours of homework for school is good because ideally that means I'm getting good grades. However, I would not say it's pleasant um I would definitely rather be spending time with my friends watching a movie or doing literally anything else but on the other hand spending all of my time with my friends may be pleasant but not wise and good because because I have school to do and goals to achieve the psalm says that Christian community is both good and pleasant Every time I leave my small group, I have spent my time wisely participating in life-giving conversations about Jesus. This is good. I also feel filled up and encouraged knowing that I am surrounded by people who truly love me and want to talk to me and be my friend. That's pleasant. David also compares being in Christian community to this precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard. And he mentioned Aaron's beard specifically. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 30 through 33, the Lord is talking to Moses and says this, Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes their perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. All right, get this. This oil is sacred. It says it three times in this passage alone. Because David in Psalm 133 compares Christian community to this oil, that means that these communities are sacred and anointed. It was not meant to be imitated, meaning there's nothing else like them. Christian communities are rare and precious, just like the oil on the high priest's head and beard. The last verse of Psalm 133 says... It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Mount Hermon is located on the Lebanon-Syria border west of Damascus, and the dew on this mountain is a stark contrast to the super dry parts of Israel, or like the passage says, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Being in community with Christians is life-giving and healthy. I love this quote by evangelist G. Campbell Morgan. The dew is ever the agent of renewal, of refreshment, of fertilizing force, the out of which life was maintained in strength. Christian community is like the dew. I openly struggle with depression. I was diagnosed during my junior year of high school, and I've wrestled with it ever since. Um, when I'm in a particularly rough season, the community that the Lord has blessed me with is my dew. They're there to listen, or mostly just to sit with me. They encourage me and tell me that the thoughts in my head are lies. They worship with me. They read scripture over me and they pray with me. They are the most loving and refreshing dew. The very last part of Psalm 133 says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Don't miss this. This is forever. Christian community is eternity. That's exactly what heaven will be. So you're probably thinking, fantastic, Rebecca. Thank you for telling me how amazing and incredible Christian community is. So what? What do I do now? Well, let me tell you, join a small group. <laughs> small, small groups are approaching super quickly. And when the time comes, find one that you want to join. And if there's not one you want to join, start one. You can do it. I believe in you. The Lord believes in you. You got it. Do life with those people. Be vulnerable and honest. The best conversations and connections happen then. Have a mentor and, hear me out, consider mentoring someone. Jesus had his small group of 12 disciples, but he also spent special time with James, Peter, and John, mentoring and discipling them. Finding someone who is further in life and their walk with Jesus and is also wiser than you is really important. I asked my first mentor uh, to disciple me before I started my senior year of high school and she mentored me for a really long time. Um, You can never be too young or too old. Proverbs 13, 14 says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Have a mentor who is unafraid to call you out on things. Accountability is one of the biggest parts of mentorship. All right, we're almost done. Take a step. To help create communities for younger generations. I spend a lot of my time with chapel kids and chapel students. And that is the place to be. I promise you guys. Chapel kids, they worship like no other generation. It's amazing. Younger generations are choosing Jesus every week. Lead a small group for chapel kids or chapel students. Serve on motion team. Let's show kids and students how amazing community can be by helping to foster it. I've found my community through the goodness of God and my friends Laurel and Brisa. I met Abby and Ashley. And then I met Lily and Abby Reese and Kat and Astor. And now I live with two of them. And I co-lead a small group with one of them. And I co-lead a worship team with another one of them. They're my people. I'm praying for you to find your community that is good and pleasant. Like oil being poured on the head and running down the beard. And like dew. May the Lord bestow his blessing on you and your Jesus-seeking community now and forevermore.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. I was wondering what room am I in right now? I thought this was the chapel. Wow. How are you guys today? Good, you happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? I know that I am. Well, guys, if you don't know me, my name is Jack, and I get to serve on the Chapel Kids team. It is the best job in the world, no contest. And as you saw on the screen, we just finished our biggest event of the year, VBS. Let me tell you, and if you missed out on VBS, you really missed out because it was amazing. We sang songs, and we danced, and we laughed, and we built giant contraptions that are arguably very dangerous, but... We did it all to make sure that your kids knew that God loved them no matter what. So will you join me in thanking the almost 300 people who made it happen at both campuses? Yes, it was amazing. And now this is not in my notes and I do not have time for this, but I feel like the Lord is telling me to do this. So is it okay if we take a moment to be silly for a second? Okay. So at VBS, whenever we would say something that one of our Bible points, like God loves you no matter what, everyone had to go, that's monumental. Oh, some of you know that. Oh, my heart. Oh, my heart. Here's the thing. As silly as that is, there is power in coming into agreement with truth. There is power in generations agreeing on truth. So all of your kids have agreed that God loves you no matter what. Will you do that with me today? All right, so I'm gonna say it and you're gonna go, that's monumental. Can you do that? All right, here we go. God loves you no matter what. That's wonderful. Oh, give yourself a big hand. That was amazing. Oh, I love that. I love that. All right, now I really don't have time, so no more dilly-dallying. Stop trying to distract me here, okay? So I have a very clear message on what the Lord wanted me to speak about today. So today we're going to talk about laughter. Okay, just stick with me for a second. I know it's kind of weird. Our world feels kind of heavy right now, doesn't it? Do you guys feel that? It feels like there's a notable lack of hope in the air. It feels like when someone walks into a room with like even a smile or a hint of optimism. My first thought is, oh, they must not have heard. Oh, they must not know. Must not know what you're asking? Everything. (laughs) It feels like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong in our world. Welcome to church. Be encouraged. But here's the thing, I have good news for you. Do you wanna hear it? Jesus offers hope to the hopeless and he trades your heaviness for joy. And this isn't theoretical now, I didn't just read it in the Bible, although I did read it in the Bible. This is my story. My senior year of high school, I was in the deepest pit of depression that you could imagine. I was feeling unloved, unwanted, purposeless, directionless, all of those things. And it was in the middle of that darkness that Jesus proved himself to be everything that he said that he was. He picked me up, he put me back on my feet, and he gave me joy and a calling. And that joy and that calling has carried me all the way to where I am today and will continue to carry me wherever he wants to take me. So this is not theoretical, this is what he does. This is what he's known for, okay? So when I talk about joy and laughter in a second, I'm not just talking maybes. I'm talking this is what he does, okay? So now I would like to show you that in God's word. Can I do that? All right. In Genesis 21, verse 6, it says this. And Sarah said, the Lord has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. What a weird verse to preach on, right? I know. Tell me about it, okay? Here is the thing. Sarah laughed. And when you hear about the context and everything that's happened in her story up until now, you'll realize that's really wild of her, okay? So here, let me tell you really quick. Sarah's husband, Abraham, was promised by God that he'd be the father of many nations. And he was 75 when that happened. Now guess how many kids he had when God promised him that? He had zero kids at 75, but he's the father of many nations? The math is not mathing for me. I don't know about you guys. It's just not making sense, okay? And so God made a promise and he always fulfills his promises. But He waited 25 plus years to fulfill it until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. There was two and a half decades of waiting and struggle behind that laughter that Sarah had. So when it happened and Isaac was born, she laughed. I think there are powerful principles to be found in this and I would like to very quickly tell you that, okay? So here we go. Write this down if you want. Number one. Laughter is not defined by your history. Look at Sarah's life. 25 years of struggle, that didn't stop her from her joy. All of her years of struggle fueled her joy. So much so that she said, anyone who is around me is going to feel my joy too. Not an option, okay? So here's the thing. That is available to you. Hear me say this. I'm going to read this because the Lord gave me this in very specific words. Whatever has happened in your story doesn't define, control, limit, deny, or keep you from the joy the Lord has for you right here, right now. Where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you doesn't disqualify you from joy. You are not the exception. Find peace in that, okay? The Bible even says that joy is a natural part of our life with God. It calls it a fruit of the Spirit, meaning that as the Spirit spreads into everything that we are, joy is accessible whenever we need it, okay? So one, laughter is not defined by your history. Two, laughter lightens the load. Look at Sarah. She has 25 years of struggle, 25 at least. There might have been more. And finally, when she gives birth to Isaac, she lets all of it go in laughter and her load was lightened. Now, I experienced this very recently as I was getting ready for VBS. Me and Bridget were running our lines furiously. This is a high tension, high frustration, high stress environment. For me, Bridget was fine, but just for me, <laughs> it was a lot, okay? And so we're talking about how God loves you no matter what and how even if you blow it, he still loves you. So as we're talking about that, right are about to say our next line, this giant cup, this comically big cup, full of very red, very sticky liquid is spilt. And as that is spilt, the line that Bridget and I say in unison is, "Uh uh-oh, you blew it. And something just broke. Bridget was cry laughing into the sink. I was cry laughing under my desk. We were a mess, okay? But 30 minutes of laughter and cleaning later, the world was a lot brighter. The knot in my chest had loosened, and VBS was something we could totally do. Laughter lightens the load. Okay, lastly, and quickly, okay, I want to give you a next step. This is all really great stuff, right? You're like, very cool, Jack, but I want you to have a next step, okay? So this is very important. Laughter is found in community, okay? You don't really laugh alone by yourself, right? If you do, I'm concerned, but... You do you, I guess. (laughs) You and I are designed to live in community, to deeply know and be deeply known, okay? Now, some of us aren't wired like that. Some of us are connected really easily and really fastly, and some are not. I'm in the not category, okay? But I, just like everyone here, am designed to be known, okay? And I want to recognize some people in this room have really deep hurts from other people, okay? In and outside of the church, I see you. I recognize that, and I'm with you on that, but you're still wired for community, okay? And the Lord is a God of healing, okay? So here's what I want to challenge you and invite you into. I want you to take a step towards someone else in faith, okay? Because on the other end of your step of faith is joy multiplied, okay? So as you do that, as I'm believing that you will do that, I have some quick tips for you on how to make friends, okay? So let's do this really quickly. One, be honest. Don't introduce someone to someone who's not you. The goal is for you to be known, and that is how your joy is multiplied, okay? If you don't do that, like, what's the point, you know? Two, take the risk to tell your story, okay? The Bible says that we overcome the enemy who is powerful and who is active, amen? by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Your testimony, your story is powerful. Don't forget that. Don't count your story out. And I know that it's scary to tell your story to someone, put it into their hand and say, all right, you get to decide what you do with that, but it is worth it, okay? Finally, if you don't know how to make friends, that's okay. Making friends as an adult is weird. We can all be honest. It's hard, okay? Unless you want to do it kindergarten style and go, Hello, my name is Jack. You want friendship? Like, that's an option for you if you want it. And honestly, it usually works. But if you don't want to do kindergarten style, my encouragement to you is to join a team here at the chapel. The common ground of serving in a place that you're passionate about is fertile ground for friendship, okay? So, laughter is not defined by your history. Laughter lightens the load, and laughter is found in community. Thank you
3: chapel how you guys doing come on you can do better than that you got extra sleep yeah (laughs) all right it's good to see you guys this morning if you don't already know me my name is Christina Ramsey Uh, I serve here on the worship team I'm usually over at Scott's Edition so that's why you might not see me as much Um, but I serve at students over there in the worship team and I'm just so excited to be uh, speaking alongside these gifted communicators today um, so I have a lot to say, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, so this morning, I want to talk to you guys about hope. Hope. Now, we're all familiar with this word hope, right? We probably use it at least once every single day. I hope I get that job. I hope it doesn't rain tonight, or whatever that may be. But do we actually understand what the word hope means? Now, by the world's standards, hope is almost synonymous with wish, Right? I wish this would happen. I want this to happen. It's, it's just an indicator of a desire. I want something. But biblically, hope actually means something so much more powerful. Hope is not just a wish or a desire. Hope is the confident expectation for something good in the future. Hope is vital to the life of a Christian. In his book, The Hope Quotient, Ray Johnston says, When someone gets hope, anything can happen. So knowing this definition of hope, I wanna ask you guys this morning, are you a hope-filled person? Do you have hope? Do you live with the confident expectation that God will move? Now, I don't wanna assume, but I'm willing to bet that for some of you in this room, that answer might be no. Bad circumstances and tragedies may have surrounded you to the point where you might say, no, I'm not a hope-filled person. I don't wait expectantly for good things to happen. In fact, most of the time, I actually expect the worst to happen. Now, if that's you, I wanna encourage you this morning because we actually have the greatest reason for hope on the planet, and that reason is Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he isn't just a flippant Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. No, he offers us powerful, tangible, weighty hope, and we have access to it. So with that in mind, I'm going to walk you through how to get your hope back this morning. Are you guys ready for that? Awesome. So a crucial factor for our hope is our community, right? Who we surround ourselves with, who we eat with, laugh with, pray with, it matters. So the first thing you're going to do to get your hope back is you're going to surround yourselves with hope-filled people. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. I don't know if you've ever tried to just like keep yourself encouraged, but it's kind of impossible, right? Because hope is not always about having hope yourself. It's about being able to borrow someone else's hope. It's about having a hope-filled person pray over you when you can't pray for yourself. It's about having someone there to pull you up when you're in a deep pit of hopelessness. And that's why we love small groups and groups here at the chapel because we need each other. So if you're looking for a way to kickstart hope in your life, the best way to do that is by joining a small group and surrounding yourselves with some hope-filled people. And we're not just gonna surround ourselves with encouraging hope-filled people. We also need to distance ourselves from those who perpetuate hopelessness we all know that one person right always complaining always discouraged a Debbie Downer I'm sure you can picture that person in your mind right now someone in your friend group your family and if you can't picture them I have some bad news for you it might be you right we are who we hang out with so if you're hanging out with hopeless people it's gonna rub off on you surround yourself with people filled with hope Now, the second thing you're going to do to get your hope back is you're actually going to take the focus off of yourself. Now, that might seem a little counterintuitive, right? I'm hoping to get my own hope back. How is taking the focus off of me going to help me? Well, I'm going to answer that with words from Jesus himself written in Acts. It is more blessed to give than receive. I mean, how can we argue with that, right? Time magazine actually published an article titled, The Secret to Happiness is Helping Others. So if the world believes that helping others brings happiness, and Jesus straight up said that giving brings life, then we better believe it, right? When you serve, what you're doing is bringing hope to someone else. You're showing them that there is a better way. You're literally bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth, and that's huge. And when you give hope away like that, you're gonna receive it tenfold, I promise you that. Now maybe you're like, well, that's great, but I have no idea where to serve. I don't have hours in the day to help people out. I'm gonna tell you, you can serve right now exactly where you're at. Because sometimes serving looks like getting involved in outreach here at chapel, signing up for third Thursday, handing out hot dogs downtown. But serving also looks like showing Christ's love to your coworker who's had a hard day or helping that struggling mom carry groceries to her car. You can serve right now, today. So you've joined a small group You've started serving, right? You're on track. You're getting some of your hope back. Now the last thing you're gonna do is you're gonna shift your perspective. How often do we look at our circumstances and the state of the world and we say, this is it. This is always how it's gonna be. We get stuck. We stop believing that God can do impossible things. So often we look at a situation and we only see what it is. We see the hurt the destruction, the hopelessness, and we don't bother to look beyond it, but our God sees more than that, right? So the next time you're starting to feel hopeless about a situation, instead of looking at it and seeing it for what it is, I want you to look and ask, what can this become? I want you to actually believe that our God can turn a situation around in the blink of an eye, Because I don't know if you've read the Bible lately, but it is absolutely filled with impossible, hopeless situations that our miraculous God turns around. So I want you to look at that situation. I want you to really look at it. The family member who's turned away from Jesus, the addiction, the disease, whatever it may be, and I want you to refuse to see that situation as hopeless. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We often emphasize love and faith, right? We know we need those things. I mean, the the first thing they say, it's the greatest is love, right? So we know we need that. We know we need our faith, but we treat hope like it's some sort of luxury. Hope is not a luxury. It's vital to our lives as Christians, so be encouraged today. Get around hopeful people, serve others, shift your perspective, and leave here confidently expecting that God is going to do something good. Thank you.
4: All right, good morning, Chapel. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, so my name is Martha Davis. I am serving the worship team here at Chapel, here and there. I'm super excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, So I want to talk to you guys about your faith, and I want to help you strengthen your faith this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to start at the 18th verse. And in this chapter, Paul is talking to the Jews, and he's trying to help them with their faith and giving them an example of how Abraham used his. So verse 18 says this, When God promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations, Abraham believed him. God had also said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Even though such a promise seemed utterly impossible, and Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though he knew that he was too old to be a father at the age of 100, and that Sarah, his wife, had never been able to have children. Verse 20, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was absolutely convinced that God was able to do anything he promised. And that's the, that's the verse I want to focus on, verse 21. He was absolutely, positively, fully convinced that God was able to do exactly what he promised. So I want to ask you a question. Are we fully convinced that God is completely able to do what, he's, what, what we have asked him to do, what he has promised us he will do? I'm going to just let that sit for a second. Just, <laughs> are we totally, fully convinced? Because, you know, we'll say we believe, I believe God, but... There's some doubt in there somewhere. Like, yeah, I believe, but as time goes on, we're kind of like, eh. Yeah, I believed on Monday, but it's Friday and nothing's happened. So, like, ah, <laughs> I'm not sure. But it says that Abraham was fully convinced, no doubt at all. Like, I'm, I'm standing on what God said. And he waited for 25, at least 25 years. How long have you been waiting for what God is? How, how long? 25 years. That's a long time to stand there with no evidence whatsoever. And watch God come through. God wants our faith to be like Abraham's, where the longer it goes, the stronger our faith gets. What do you believe in God for? Is it a job? Is it a car? Is it someone that's on their on their deathbed to get back up? Whatever it may be, God is able. And the question isn't, you know, the question isn't, is God able? Is 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 it possible for Him to do it? The question is, do we believe? God can do more than what we can even imagine he can do. But it's our it's our lack of faith that stops him from doing what he wants to do in our lives. We have to get to the place where our faith is strong. It says in in verse 19 it says Abraham's faith did not weaken even though he knew he was too old. He knew it. And instead of letting the fact that he was too old and Sarah couldn't have children, that's two impossibilities, y'all. Like that Mark Mark 10:27 says this. It says with men it is impossible but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. That's not just a nice little pet scripture. He, God means that. All things are possible to him who believes. So Abraham's faith, in the, in, in the face of impossibility, his faith didn't shrink back. His faith actually went up and said, no, God can handle this. In spite of the fear, in spite of the uncertainty, in spite of the thing that's in front of me, Abraham said, I still believe God. And reading this, I realized that the reason he really believed God was because he trusted what God said. He trusted God's word. And that's the thing that's going to help us carry through is this right here, this Bible. Because this is full Of person after person, testimony after testimony of God doing impossible things over and over and over and over again. He did it for Moses, did it for Joshua, did it for Joseph, did it for Paul, did it for John, did it for David. And the list goes on and on and on. What about you? Because if he can do it for John, if he can do it for Paul, if he can do it for Moses, if he can do it for Abraham and Aaron and all these people, can he do it for you? That's the determining factor of whether God can do it for you. Do you believe he can do it for you? Because he did it for all these men and women. They were men and women just like us. With flaws and weaknesses just like us. And God did the impossible in their lives because they stepped out on faith and believed that God could do it. With no hesitation. And look, faith is, faith. faith is scary sometimes. Like, okay, I'm, I remember... Well, so I just got married. Praise God.
3: <laughs> <Whew>.
4: <laughs> and, you know, we were working on the wedding and, you know, it was a month and a half out and we didn't have the finances to pay for the rest of the wedding. And... I couldn't work enough and she couldn't work enough to pay for the rest of this wedding. And it was either we pay for this wedding or there is no wedding. So, you know, panic starts to set in like, okay, what are we going to do? There's no way out of this because who, who's going to help us? I don't know what to do. But I remember the Lord was like, all right, just are, are you, are you going to believe me or not? So I went and I prayed and just talked to God. We both did. We talked to God like, okay, I can't handle this. So I need you to tell me what to do. I trust you, but just tell me what to do. So a week passes by, I hear nothing, nothing. I'm praying the same thing, you know, asking God to help me, trusting to help me, nothing happens. Two weeks pass by, nothing happens, nothing happens. I hear nothing, no, one, no, like no money comes in. So time's ticking, like, you know, it's, it's so funny. God's like, all right, you're like, God, we, we got three weeks to make this happen. You're gonna wait till the last second. Like, come on, God. All right, so three weeks pass by, Okay, we have. I, I, I'm going to God like God. We have. You know we have three weeks, right? Like, as if he doesn't know. Like, <laughs> we have three weeks to get this hat. Like, what's, what's going on? I didn't say it, but that's what I was thinking. And I had to catch myself and remind myself, God, God can't answer if I'm not in faith. And if my faith isn't fully convinced, because me halfway believing, God's not going to come through. If I'm halfway believing, there's no halfway believing. Either you believe God or you don't. So either I'm with God, you're going to do it, or I might as well go ahead and just go find some other way. I had to be absolutely convinced. And the moment, I mean, the day I became absolutely convinced, that next week, and for the, God, God paid the wedding. We had a wedding. But it wasn't until we became completely, absolutely convinced and without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to pay for this wedding. Because he ordained it and I'm going to just do what he tells me to do because it's not on me anymore. He had, like, he's going to pay for this wedding. As soon as I did that, God paid for it. That made me realize, oh, so it's not God (laughs) that is incapable. And it's just like, wait, God's waiting on me. God's waiting on you to believe that the impossible is actually possible. But it doesn't happen unless you get in here. And find out what God can do. Find out His promises and, and, and start to believe them without a shadow of a doubt that God can do it. Amen. So let me pray for you real quick. Father, I thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room. Thank you, God, for their heart. Thank you, Lord, that we love you. Lord, we love you so much, God. Help us, Lord, to get in this Bible, get in this word, and surround ourselves with, with people that are full of hope, full of faith, God, that we can feed off them, God. Help us to feed off of what you put in your word that will boost our faith, God. Lord, Lord I pray that as we leave this place, Lord, we would not Go back and do what we normally do. We will get in your word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes, faith is built when we hear your word, God. Help us to dig in your word deeper and to trust you like never before. In Jesus' name,
5: amen. Great job, Mike. How you doing 1115? I feel like I'm about to do announcements again or something. (laughs) My name is Morgan Boger. I lead a young adult ministry here at the chapel called Thrive. (laughs) These are some of my people up here in the front rows. I'm so excited to share with you guys today about something that God has been firing me up about recently. And it's something that we talk about in Thrive a lot as well. And it's that as believers, we aren't just called to come to God and to grow in our faith. But we're called to come, grow, and then go. As we grow in relationship with Jesus and in his likeness, just like the disciples, Jesus sends us back out into the world to be his hands and feet. God has a plan for each of us to uniquely bring his kingdom here on earth. Amen? (laughs) All right, so the story I want to talk about today is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I love this story. And in this story, Jesus is up on a hillside He's teaching this just massive crowd, right? And as the hours start to pass by and the day turns to evening, one of the disciples turns to Jesus and he says, why don't we send these people off to the countryside to go get something to eat? And Jesus turns to them and he's like, you guys feed them. And they're like, well, Jesus, there's there's like 5,000 people here. Are you, that would cost eight months wages. Are you telling us that we should go spend our money to buy these people bread so that they can have something to eat? And Jesus is like, well, what do you have? And one of the disciples, Andrew, he comes up and he's like, well, there's this this little boy here, but all he's got is five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus is like, all right. He makes it happen. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks for it. He multiplies it enough to feed over 5,000 people that day and have 12 baskets of food left over. You know, there's so many things we can pull from this passage. But one of the first things that stands out to me is that God's standards are different than the world's. And age, by the way, does not matter. Whether you're 85 or 5, God can use you. And he wants to use you. God used a little boy that day, right? He didn't have a Bible degree. He didn't have any sort of title or qualifications. But he had a heart that wanted to be used by God. And he offered to Jesus what he had. 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things, the despised things, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And the other thing we see here is that our God is the God of immeasurably more, right? When Jesus told his disciples to feed the people they replied with, but all we have are five loaves of bread and two fish. But praise be to God, because where we see roadblocks, he sees pathways. Where we see impossibilities and limitations, he sees opportunities. God is always taking the most impossible situations and flipping the script. He delights in doing this. He took a little boy's lunch that day and he multiplied it enough to feed over 5,000 people and have leftovers. And I don't want to gloss over that last part there because I think we can learn something about Jesus' love here. He doesn't just provide what we need. He gave extra. Church, let's be a people who anticipate big things of what our God can do. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 3 20 he's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask think or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. God wants to take your prayers your time your money your passions your interests, your yes and do immeasurably more than what you could ever imagine could be done with them. You know the story of Thrive began much like this just like the little boy who who offered up his lunch to Jesus that day, David and I and some other people, we had this idea that we brought to God to gather people on the campus of John Tyler Community College in some random room below the library with no windows every Wednesday and eat Little Caesars Pizza, which tastes like cardboard, by the way. We had it every week and, and you know, eventually this, this meeting that we were having turned into a club with John Tyler and then we had Bible studies in our homes and we had worship nights and as this community grew in love for Jesus and for each other, we began to see people in our classes come to know Jesus and the, fa- excuse me. <laughs> and the faculty and staff and it turned into this incredible move of God in Midlothian, Virginia among the college students. You know, we had no idea when we set out what God would do with it along the way, or that it would be anything of what it is today, seven years later. Do you know the other thing is that it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. Sometimes the world or the enemy's voice will tell us, oh, you're a new Christian. You can't be used by God. Or, oh, you've done this, or you've done that. Don't you remember? He can't use you. Or you can't be used by God. You're still struggling with fill in the blank." But, you know, we see in the story of Peter that God works differently than we might expect. Jesus had called Peter up and out of his old life and asked him to follow him, to be one of his disciples. Peter found new purpose and hope in Jesus. But then he did exactly what he said he would never do. He denied Jesus, not once, but three times. And the minute he realizes what he's done, shame takes over Shame causes him to forget Jesus' love for him. He backslides. He goes back to his old way of life. He finds comfort in his old ways. In John 21, we see that he goes out onto the sea to his old job. He fishes all night. He catches nothing all night long. And then in the morning time, as the sun's coming up, he sees this man standing on the shore. This man calls out to him across the way. Hey, why don't you try throwing your net over to the left side? So reluctantly, Peter does it. And when he pulls in the net, a huge hull of fish comes in. And with this little miracle, he realizes that the man standing on the shore is his friend, Jesus. Immediately, he dives into the water. He starts swimming towards the shore, probably expecting that Jesus would be upset with him, by the way, because he denied him. But when he gets to the shore, he finds that Jesus is cooking him breakfast. Jesus lovingly reinstates his calling when he tells him, Peter, feed my sheep. You know, Jesus is saying the same message to us today. He's saying, yes, I know what you've done. Yes, I know where you've been. Yes, I know how long you've been gone. But the grace or the blood I shed on the cross is sufficient to cover your sins, your past, your mistakes, your struggles, your addictions. And whoever is in Christ, he is a new creation. So come with me because I want to use you. You know, God doesn't need to use us. He could have easily fed those 5,000 people by himself, right? But he chooses to use us. He wants to use you. Do you know that before you were born, God knew all about you? He knew what you looked like. He knew what your passions would be. He knew what your gifts and interests would be. He had a plan for your life from the very beginning. He created you uniquely, and he has plans to use you uniquely, Ephesians 2:10 says that for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. Isaiah 6:8 Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send? And who will go for us?" And Isaiah says, "Lord, here I am. Send me." You know, God is looking for hearts that are surrendered to him. He's looking for hearts that rest in him, abide in him, and trust in him. He's eagerly looking for people who want to be used by him. Do you want to be used by God? Because he wants to use you. And it can all start with just saying, here I am, Lord. Send me. Church, can I pray over you to close this out? Is that okay? Okay. Father, we love you. We thank you for the blood that you shed on the cross for us, Lord. God, we thank you that that your standards are different than the world's, Lord. We thank you that that we don't have to measure up before coming to you, God. That you say, come as you are, God. We thank you that we don't have to be pre-qualified to be used by you, God, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our jobs, God, but that you qualify us along the way, God. Lord, would you raise up your people today, God, for people who are here who are struggling to know their, their calling or how they could be used up by you, God. Would you just place it on their hearts right now in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you for what you've done today. Lord, we pray all these things in your in your wonderful, merciful name. Amen.
6: Man, can we give it up for these young communicators this morning? Wow. The future is so bright, not only here at the chapel, but in our world because there are young people like this. Uh, here in our church and all over the place. And we're so grateful for each of you. Uh, thank you for sharing your hearts with us this morning. You might be saying, I thought this was Young Communicators Sunday. Who's this old guy up here, right? <laughs> Pastor Brandon, Pastor Joel asked me to come up and just wrap it up. And so I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts and a couple of ideas with you today. You've heard um, Andy talk about surrendering your life to Jesus. You heard Rebecca talk about community. You heard uh, Jack talk about joy. And all those things have this thing in common is that all these things happen in the midst of other people, right? Life happens with other people. You're here this morning because you're here with other people. I was talking to somebody in the lobby just this morning, a guy that I knew from someplace else. I know you're in here somewhere. Uh, But he's here because one of his friends invited him. We're all products of the people that are in our lives, the people that are part of our lives. You never hear a story of somebody say, well, I came to know God, I found freedom, and I made a difference all by myself, right? There's no Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, Christians. We all do it with other people. We do it with other people in our lives. They're part of our lives, and that's what happens in our lives. We're not made for independence. We're made for interdependence. We're made for interdependence with each other. That's why God gave us this body of Christ to be a part of. And in my life, it's been people that have molded and shaped my life. The first person that molded and shaped my life was my older sister. She, uh, we grew up Catholic up in the, in the Northeast, and everybody's Catholic up there. So we didn't have anything like chapel students up there. There was nothing uh, like a youth group or anything like that. Like, we just went to church, and that was it, and it was bored. And, and you just sat there, and halfway through, they gave you a snack, and then you went home. And, <clears throat> and that was it, you know? But we, we had this desire to know something more about God. And my sister, come on, I know it's... My my mother-in-law is over here. She she just gave me the look, right? How many, you know, it's hard to preach with your mother-in-law in in the room, right? But I've got an amazing one at that. So anyway, so she found this group. It was called Young Life. Any Young Life fans in the house? Come on. So it's an interdenominational youth group, and my sister began to listen to Christian music, Petra, Newsboys, Audio Adrenaline. Come on. Let's give it up for Petra right now. Come on. I'll, uh, I'll, I still listen to Petra. Don't give her. But her influence on my life. Every time, I'd always have to bum a ride off her because I didn't have a car. So I'd always bum a ride off her. And she'd put the tape. And I'm like, not that tape again. But I want to tell you that after months and months of hearing that message of the gospel through that music, God began to work in my life. And one night in October of 1991, I got down on my hands and knees And I asked God to come into my life, and he changed my life. And it was because of my sister, because of her influence in my life, because of people. I had a deacon at First Baptist Church in Hanson gave my first Bible. It was one of those paper Bibles that looks like it's leather, but it's really paper, right? One of those really cheesy, corny ones. That's the Bible that I brought with me to Bible college. Bob Wilcox invested into my life. He was my Sunday school teacher. He taught a men's Bible study. And while I was in Bible college, Every once in a while, he would put a card in the mail, and he'd write, I believe in you. I'm praying for you. And then he'd put a big old check in that card. Come on, because can I get an amen, right? You want to encourage somebody, add a check, right? It always helps. It always, but but it was always right on time. It was always at exactly the right time. We need people in our lives. And I could go on and on about all the people that have influenced my life. But us, as a church, us as individuals, we need people in our lives. We need people to invest in our lives. And then I'm going to show you at the end how it all turns around. If you get your Bible, you can open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, You, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these things to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Right? So the first principle is this. is this that we need help. We can't get there on our own. We need help. Like in this Christian life, in this walk with God, we need help. We can't do it on our own. And mentors and 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 people that come into our lives, teachers, they all come into our lives to help us, to help us grow and to help us to move forward in Christ. The second principle is, this, is that I need friends. You see, Paul and Timothy, Paul was Timothy's mentor. He helped him to grow. And then it says that, Paul taught Timothy in the presence of other people. So Timothy had other people who were with him as they were learning, as they were growing. Timothy had these friends that he was walking with, doing life with. We need people in our lives. We need community. If you didn't hear it from our speakers earlier, hear it from me. We need community. We need people. It's so important. And this is where everything changes. This is where everything changes. It's great to have friends. It's great to have mentors. But when you begin to pour your life into other people, that's where the magic happens. That's where it really happens. That's where you see the most amazing things happen in your walk with God. And that's why at the chapel, we're obsessed. We're obsessed. I mean, you heard it out of the malls of our young people. They've been trained from a young age, and we just programmed them. They're like, join a, join a small group. <laughs> Go to Growth Track, right? This is what we do. This is what we do because this is what works. This is how we grow. This is the the process for how you can grow here at the chapel. If you're here, and, and you need somebody to teach you, come to Growth Track after eleven fifteen. We'll show you how to get plugged in. Join a small group. There are open small groups right now. You can jump in any time. I went to Men's Alliance yesterday. Come on, Men's Alliance.
3: Yeah. Whoop, whoop.
6: That's no joke. I just want to say I'm. I'm still. I woke up this morning. I had this pain, like somewhere over here, and I'd never felt a pain there before. And I was like, "Do I have appendicitis? Am I going to be able to talk this morning?" So anyway, but join a small group. Come to Growth Track. Ask somebody to mentor you. If you need friends, join a small group. Right? You can't do life alone. You need people who are on the same journey that you are. In fact, uh, I found a friend uh, last year. I did Freedom Group. Any Freedom people in the house? <laughs> freedom group and we're at freedom conference and I was talking to one of the guys in my freedom group and he said this is hard for a dude to do I just want to say it's hard for a dude to do he say you want to hang out sometime right it's like it's almost as bad as like asking the first person you asked out on a date asked on a date you're like you want to hang out sometime and now we get coffee almost every week we're doing life together we are great friends and if it's time for you to lead It's time to jump in. The best way to lead here at the chapel is to lead a small group. It's only like 12 weeks, sometimes eight weeks if you do it over the summer. Lead a small group. Jump in. We have group leader training coming up uh, early in the fall, late in uh, August. And as I conclude, everybody say amen. Come on. You're supposed to say amen. As I conclude, I just want to tell a quick story. About 10 years ago, I was coaching my son's baseball team. And one of the other fathers on the team, he showed up and he had on a Red Sox hat and I had on my Red Sox shirt. He says, are you a real Red Sox fan? I said, oh yeah. And it turned out that we were from, we were both from the towns right next to each other in Massachusetts. And we got to talking and he loved to talk about politics and the economy and all these things. And, And finally I was like, hey, would you like to come to a Bible study at my house? Would you like to come to a small group at my house? And... Ten years ago, that friendship began to grow, and he did Bible study with me. His life got blown up in the best possible way. We did discipleship things together, and now he's one of my best friends. I don't go a week without talking to him. In fact, he comes here to the chapel now, too, and it's just amazing what God will do when you decide that you're going to lead, when you decide that you're going to make a disciple. You're going to make a difference. So as the worship team comes The in conclusion was the clue. As the worship team comes, (laughs) I want to ask, what's your next step? We heard some amazing messages this morning, some challenges. What's your next step today? What does God have for you? Do you need a mentor? Are you going to join a group? Do you need friends in your life? Are you going to spend time with some people? Do you need to start leading? Are you going to step up and lead a group this fall? God wants to do something amazing in your life. So if you'll stand to your feet, I just want to pray over us as as we finish up. Lord God, you are so awesome. You are so amazing. We thank you for these young communicators, Lord. What great messages they shared with us this morning. God, their passion, their love for you is just so inspiring to us. Lord, I pray that you would bless them, Lord. And now, Lord, for each of us, Lord, that we would see that next step in our lives and we would be bold and we would take that step in faith today, for it's in your name we pray, amen. Come on, church, let's worship.